The Root of Cash podcast is brought to you by 4.0 Schools. 4.0 invests in community-centered models of education, providing coaching, curriculum, and cash to those with the imagination to envision more equitable ways to learn. To learn more about their work, head over to 4.0.org. And now, without further ado, let's get started with the Rooted Cash Podcast. Hey, this is DJ Villain. Welcome back to the Rooted Cash Podcast. We were so lucky to talk to the research team behind the cash transfer pilot. Starting in 2019, they helped facilitate the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED, in Stockton, California. SEED gave 125 randomly selected residents $500 a month for 24 months and studied the impact of those dollars. At the end, they found that the initiative provided the money needed to secure housing, employment, and even healthier habits. We wanted to learn more about that project, their own personal experience behind their work, and the motivation behind the Rooted Cash Transfer Pilot, happening at Rooted School. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with these incredible leaders on the Rooted Cash Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Stacia West. I'm an assistant professor in the College of Social Work at the University of Tennessee, and I am also the co-founder and director of the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at UPenn. I work on a number of projects studying guaranteed income. I am very excited about the 4.0 Rooted Schools Partnership because it's the only one running in the country right now um, where actual high school students are getting a guaranteed income. And I'm uh, Dr. Castor Baker, and you can call me Amy, and I'm an assistant professor at the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania, and along with Dr. West, uh, co-founded the Center for Guaranteed Income Research at Penn. Stockton and 4.0 are, are probably the two things I'm most excited about, simply because you know Stockton set the tone, of course. And then second, I think that when we let students lead, we show what the potential is. And it's the only cash transfer pilot that is truly putting the power in the hands of youth and letting them really drive the conversation and drive the project. And I just think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, a lot of people, especially in the United States for whatever reason, they are completely oblivious to the idea of what UBI is, you know? So since y'all are obviously experts, I would like to know if you could explain what UBI is in practical. I'll take that one. There are so many different ways to describe, is it a guaranteed income? Is it a guaranteed basic income? Is it a universal basic income? There's a lot of different words for it. And I think that leads to some confusion. So there's kind of two distinctions I would make. I talk about a guaranteed income. So a guaranteed income means that you get a certain amount every month and that it's recurring and that ideally it lasts for a lifetime, right? We haven't seen that happen in the U.S. yet. A universal basic income applies to absolutely everyone, right? So everyone in the United States would get it. It would be basic in that it's enough to cover your basic needs. So I talk a lot about guaranteed income because I think that's where we are right now in the U.S. of understanding this. I don't think we're necessarily ready to talk about universality. I think some of the, the debate over terms is that people get confused simply because with um, Andrew Yang's run for president, he used the term UBI a lot. So that gets used a lot in the press, even though we actually have not had a true uh, UBI experiment yet in the United States, because that absolutely would go to everyone. I'll also add that Dr. King talked about a guaranteed income, right? And so I think that's really where we get the language from of our choice to use that. 
when you think about universal basic income, some people, they, they think we're just giving people free money because it's free money safe. That's a misconception that a lot of people have. Uh, what is the goal of UBI? First, from a scientific perspective, we really want to figure out, you know, how does cash actually work when we give it to people um, in these types of programs? And so really determining, you know, how does it function um, and who does it work best for and how, right? So we want to make sure that at some point in the future, when we actually hopefully have a policy in the United States around this, we're not making a big expensive mistake uh, and we're not uh, like creating new forms of inequality by locking people out. So that's kind of the first one. But the second one that I think is probably, you know, arguably far more important is thinking about the, the ways in which we remove people's dignity by the way that the market and the economy works in the United States and, and elsewhere around the globe, but specifically to the United States. And so right now we tie people's dignity, value and, and worth to how much money they make, um, not to the fact that they're human. And so the real ethos behind the idea of guaranteed income or basic income is saying you matter because you're human and there is an income floor that we ought not let anyone fall beneath um, simply because you're breathing, right? That you you matter and you deserve to be here. So that's really sort of that goal is saying, how do we um, best care for our fellow citizens? So when people don't have to worry about putting food on the table or uh, paying the rent, right, or finding childcare, whenever you take out all of that stress, then a person is able to think about who they want to be in the world, right? They can think about what are the new job opportunities or the new art projects that I'm interested in exploring. And whenever you're in poverty and you just have all that stress on you, it prevents you from being able to be creative or, or think about those, those new opportunities. People get caught up on this idea of being able to make it from the bottom to the top. And obviously you could do such a thing. It's not impossible, but a lot of people don't take into account just how hard it is because of the way that this country works. And I feel like a lot of people don't really take into consideration how easily somebody can take away your dignity and essentially turn you into a slave. Okay. But if you constantly have to go to a place for hours upon hours on end every day to earn only the basic amount of money that you need to survive. Are you really any better than a slave? You know, like I have an example of like a former coworker. She was a 75 year old woman who worked at Burger King for the past 45 years. And she would always, you know, make the casual joke, like uh -huh, if I got fired, I would not be able to have any money. But you still have to keep that idea in your mind that like, if she got fired, she probably really would not be able to afford to feed herself. She would not be able to afford to clothe herself to keep the lights on in her house. So when you think about things of that nature, it kind of helps to put into perspective that there needs to be change, you know? And I feel like the idea of a universal basic income is something that could really help out people, especially people in that situation, because there's no way that someone who is 75 years old, senior citizen, should you know, have to feel the need to work all day, every day, just to provide the basic needs that she, you know, needs for herself. I just want to say something else about that. I think you're absolutely right. And and the way that you frame that, I think, is so crucial. And what you're tapping at is some of the resistance that we experience is that I think some of the fear and I, I can't say this, you know, I can't prove it scientifically. But what I know I'll say from from doing this work is that some of the resistance is that people fear folks who are free. 
right? Is that if people are free to make their own decisions and set their own path, um, I look at that as opportunity and potential and saying, you know, who are we leaving out um, of entrepreneurship? Who are we leaving out of possibility? Who are we leaving out of culture, design, art, imagination, right? But there's others that really fear that emancipation, right? And so I, I don't think that you're wrong is that when you are locked into work that erodes your dignity and destroys your health, um, it is a form of bondage. Um, and when you're forced to, to choose between bad options, um, you're, you're just trapped, right? And so that's really kind of the angle that we come from with the work is saying, you know, how is it possible that we are that we are locking people out of opportunity and really out of dignity? And are there ways that we can, you know, emancipate from that system? What is the biggest misconception about these policies? Because a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about these. So I would really like to know from your perspective. I think the biggest misconception is that people will spend it unwisely, right? Unwisely. I'm saying this in air quotes because a lot of this is based off of narratives of who deserves cash and who doesn't. And it's also based on myths of the wealth, welfare queen, right? That we have heard about since Reagan and that's rooted in anti-blackness. So people are like, oh, they're gonna buy lottery tickets and alcohol and cigarettes. And you know, if you have ever been poor or you've ever worked with somebody who struggles financially, either as a social worker or as a volunteer, you know that people who are in poverty or struggling financially budget better than anyone else on this planet, way more than rich people. Poor people are way smart with their money. You can't budget your way out of poverty. Poverty by definition is lack of cash, right? And so we attach all these misconceptions to that. But the second misconception that I keep seeing is really that that Americans won't tolerate it. And I think that that's a myth, right? And so we often get this question when we talk to the media or to the press, you know, how would you pay for it? Will people actually vote for this? Will it actually happen? And I think it's a misconception that it's not possible, right? And I also think it's a misconception that we can't pay for it, right? With the amount of money that we spend on policing, on the military, on everything else in the United States, there are ways if we choose to do it to actually be able to fund this. And I think it's a myth that we can't. Budgets are moral documents. They show us what we value and who we value. And I don't think that it's impossible that we could see some form of basic income pass in the United States. Uh, I personally feel like funding shouldn't be an issue you have to really weigh the risk versus reward here. We are already trillions of dollars in debt. So what? You know, we, we have money to put into things like startup companies. We have money to put into things like the stock market. Well, that's too much money being thrown around for you to be able to sit here and tell me, oh, we can't afford to give people who are struggling and living under bridges $500 a month because it's It's just too unbearable. You had money to try and build a wall, but you don't have money to give people. I don't get it. For both of you personally, what piqued your interest in getting involved with universal basic income, UBI, general income? What what sparked this interest or like this desire to be a part of this? So for me, I worked as a social worker for a number of years um, and trained as a social worker. I worked with people who were experiencing homelessness and domestic violence and substance use issues and mental illness. I look at my own family, which is fairly well off, and a lot of those issues exist in my own family. The difference is money, right? Do you have money to 
put a roof over your head? Do you have money to leave your abusive partner? Do you have money to uh, go get treatment if you have a substance abuse issue or see a counselor, right? So we see all these symptoms of poverty in society and we treat those symptoms, right? But we never actually treat poverty itself. So that's how I got interested. If we can solve poverty, we can solve a number of different social ills that we, we experience. And I'll just be honest, you know, I I did a lot of work as a researcher, social worker, community organizer during the housing crisis and, and the recession and just watched just decades of civil rights progress being eroded in, in a matter of months. And I'll, I'll be honest, I got real angry. Um, I, I still hold a lot of rage about some of those uh, research experiences that I had, just, just watching people who carefully against all odds, you know, held their families and their communities together only to have it ripped apart, you know, as they're approaching old age in the housing crisis and just thinking that there has to be a better way to do this. And actually, Dr. West was the one who convinced me that we needed to do work in this area. She kept bringing it up every time we were working on a project because we were writing a lot about the gender wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, all these different types of issues with housing and foreclosure and kept ending. And she's like, we should really talk about unconditional cash. I was like, no, we can't talk about that. No one's going to take us seriously. And she kept pushing. It's like, no, I think you're right. And I'm really getting tired of just telling everybody how big and bad everything is and documenting horror, right? It's like at a certain point, you have a responsibility uh, to step in and actually try to see, is there a way that we can maybe alleviate some of the things that we're studying as scientists? And so really that's kind of where, where I come to the work is one, being really motivated by, by values, of course, um, and then two, just saying, hey, there's gotta be a better way, right? We keep trying to solve 21st century problems with old tools, right? And then we wonder why it doesn't work. So so we haven't meaningfully updated the safety net in decades, and yet we still keep trying the same things and it's just not working. So it's, it's time to try something new. I mean, if you look at who lost homes, right, the majority of people who lost homes and lost all their wealth, it's the first generation of people to benefit from the civil rights movement and, and the women's movement in the 60s and 70s. And so you take those groups of people, they're the first ones to claw their way back, right, after being locked out through all these exclusionary policies. And then we think about the fact that we are, you know, turning back that progress, um, we have a bit of a responsibility to address that. Yeah, I got to put some numbers to this just because I know them off the top of my head and it's insane to think about. So we looked at data from this group of older adults that kind of weathered the crisis because we wanted to be able to bear out this hypothesis. And what we found is that compared to white men, black women lost $90,000 of their wealth. Right. So white men did better, ended up actually building wealth over the recession while everybody, you know, black women are losing their houses, their families are falling apart, that sort of a thing. The nuance get, gets lost in this. And it's kind of just like, oh, you know, the housing crisis was bad. Can you tell me a bit about like Stockton before the study came into effect? So Stockton was one of those cities that was one of the places where banks tested, excuse me, not banks, predatory lenders tested some of these really terrible products that led to mass foreclosure. And so Stockton really experienced the worst of what capitalism has to offer. Um, and it really made it kind of an ideal place to say, hey, it, 
this is a spot where maybe we can think about testing Dr. King's idea, right? And so it, it's really fantastic to think about the ways that Stockton has shifted and how the basic income experiment fits within that landscape. So, you know, the city went bankrupt um, and it's now solvent. Uh, they elected Mayor Michael Tubbs, as I'm sure you know. Um, he was the youngest mayor ever elected in the United States, I believe. And, and he the, the project really was his vision. Uh, and he partnered with the Economic Security Project to do that. And then Dr. West and I were brought on as the research team. And so beyond kind of the research itself, I think what's most exciting about Stockton is that it is far more similar to the rest of the United States than it is dissimilar. So it's a fairly mid-sized city. It's very politically diverse. It's very, um, you know, sort of, I would say, racially and ethnically diverse. And it has experienced kind of booms and busts in housing and really makes it a really great place to say, hey, like, how could this actually function? How could it actually work? So Stockton and 4.0, what were the differences in the Stockton project and the work done in the 4.0 with 4.0? Yeah, I mean, there's there's several differences. I think um, the the one that jumps out at me that that's really big is is sort of the way that we give people the money in the 4.0 experiment um, and how often it happens, right? And so we know from you know a lot of research that people of different ages interact with money differently, right? And but we don't know yet how that functions in a basic income experiment. And so there's a lot of variation um, around sort of how to actually give people money and, and do you use a debit card? Do you use Zelle? Do you use PayPal? You know, how, how does it actually work? Should we give people money weekly? Should we give it monthly? So there are some key differences, you know, in that, in that cadence amount. And it, that really kind of um, is going to shape and shift the way that we talk about the research moving forward. I would add that there were some pretty big similarities. So when we designed the Rooted 4.0 project, we used a very similar process um, as Stockton, where we talked with Hassan Hassan, we talked with Jess, we talked with some students at the school um, to think about, you know, what we didn't know, how much, how much money should we give? At what time should we give it? How do we disperse this money? How do we involve the students, right? Um, so all of those decisions, I think the best research is uh, really designed in concert with community, right? Not outside of it. And so that's that's the ethos that we implemented in Stockton and also in New Orleans. Yeah, I'll add one more similarity that I think uh, jumps out at me is that when we started the Stockton experiment, we met with community groups people were unequivocal that they believed so strongly in Stocktonians that they would use the money well. And, and what well means is, of course, very subjective, right? But they had total faith that it would work work well and that, that people were going to prove everyone wrong. And when we had those exact same conversations with the people at 4.0 and Rooted School, the teachers, the staff, the students had the exact same reaction. You know, our, our students know exactly what they're doing. We trust them and we have utter faith that this can be a demonstration pilot that will show people what youth are capable of. So I think, you know, at a moment in America where we have so much political divisiveness and there's just so much ugliness on the news, I think there's far more faith um, in, in humanity on the ground level that we sometimes miss because we don't amplify those voices and stories. And so I think about the fact that New Orleans is wildly different from Stockton in terms of where it's located, its history, its geography, its makeup. But in both spots with two totally different groups of people, when we went to the community, the response was exactly the same. 
we know that this will work and we are ready to prove the world, the world wrong. And I think that that's really exciting and is really a counter narrative to the way that we think about um, storytelling, the way that we think about narrative and the way that we think about what's possible. What was it like um, when you found out that you were going to be receiving the guaranteed income and did you think about it as a UBI or did you think about it as just like, weirdly, my school's giving me 50 bucks? I thought it was something that had to do with UBI. I, I told my mom that in the car when I signed up for it, I signed up for it the day that it was told to us that it was in the newsletter because this came up at the exact same time that I wanted to start a business. I had invested my own personal money into buying a, uh, a label printer and a bunch of like packaging and stuff, but I hadn't actually bought any product. So I was just like, okay, so if I get this, this will literally be able to pay for my product in two weeks. I figured out I got it. I was in the car with my family. I was just like, I got it. And they were just like, yeah. <laughs> like everybody was just like, yeah. Everybody was like, just so happy for me. I just turned 18 years old. I used $200 to put a security deposit down on my credit card because I want to build credit. And I didn't have to use any money of my own. I waited a month. That's it. And it's just the idea of having that guaranteed income. That is just like really awesome. And I feel like it gives you that level of security to just to just to know for a fact that no matter what, I know I will have $50 this week. So I, I just thought it would be I thought it was I thought it would be a great idea. I'm participating in it now. It is a great idea. And since I thought it was such a great idea, I feel the need to let the world know how great of an idea this is. It never occurred to me like at the time that this was something unheard of or like undone before. And then now it hit me after doing all the research, all the interviews that this is such a big deal. You know, what do you think would happen if every single ju like rising junior or graduating senior at your school uh, were a part of the exact same program that you're a part of? What do you think would happen? When I look at things like this, especially in schools that are so innovative and so different, like rooted, I feel like if this continues to happen, then more people will start talk, talking about Rooted. Rooted will become a bigger school. More kids will go to Rooted. More kids will participate in this experiment. More kids will know about UBI. More kids will vote for UBI. And I feel like this could be something that could help really push this initiative. How do you like become a part of these like organizations? There's a great organization called Income Movement, um, and they're focused on grassroots community organizing uh, around guaranteed income across the U.S. So that's one of the ways. Also, you all do know that there's another pilot that's going to start happening in New Orleans very soon. So it just recently got announced. A lot of the details are still totally top secret but the city of New Orleans is going to have a bigger guaranteed income pilot. Here's one that's not so top secret. Do Dr. West and I, our team, the same team that led Stockton will be leading the work in New Orleans. Honestly, I truly feel like this was one of the best conversations that I've ever had. There was a lot of laughs. There was a lot of, a lot of serious talk. This was, uh, this was very insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin West and Dr. Baker, for joining the Rooted Cash podcast. Studies and projects like these are way more complicated than they seem. 
I appreciate each of you for helping us better understand that there's real science to this work and how this research will potentially address major inequalities in our system. And as always, stay tuned for more awesome interviews with the Rooted Cash Podcast.